Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. David J. Lieberman will join us to discuss Mind Reader. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, wouldn't it be great if you could read somebody's mind? Joining us today to discuss approaches to this is Dr. David J. Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman is a renowned psychotherapist and author of 11 books, including the New York Times bestsellers Get Anyone to Do Anything and Never Be Lied to Again. His trained personnel in the U.S. military, the FBI, CIA, and the NSA, and his instructional video is mandatory for psychological operations graduates. He has penned the new book, Mind Reader, the new science of deciphering what people really think, what they really want, and who they really are. Dr. Lieberman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, certainly a fascinating book you've penned here, Mind Reader, in which you decipher the science of what people are really thinking. I'm curious how you came to write this book. Right. So it's interesting if you think about it, that human nature hasn't changed in you know thousands of years, but communication has. And the old tools and techniques, many of which I had a hand in developing, we're going back about 25 years ago in terms of lie detection and body language, are just no longer practical or relevant. In the age where communication takes place over Twitter with 280 characters, or people are masked up because of COVID or over Zoom, the traditional tools and techniques simply don't work. Even those that do, many of them are just rendered inert because of the logistics of conversation. Certainly is a whole new realm in which uh, someone can be judged by a five word tweet. Right. So that's, you know, I I make a point of of encouraging people not to read anything into, you know, a five word tweet. But when you have a pattern of syntax, it can be very, very revealing. And so, you know, one of the reasons why the book has gotten so much attention is because it's not one trick ponies. It's not simply, you know, look for this and don't look for that. If you've got a a correspondence or even a 200-word paragraph, there could be five, six, seven, eight different markers to look for. And also in conversation and relationships, interactions, whether personal or professional, there's so much you can glean simply from how people choose to express themselves and almost ignoring the words themselves. What are the general strategies you have in terms of analyzing these patterns of speech, these ways of communication people should be looking for? So there's lots of layers here, but let's just cover a quick basic one, and that has to do with pronouns. Uh, Let's let's take a personal pronoun, such as I, me, mine, mine, and so on. So the research shows that a person who is more inclined to believe what they're saying is likely to be using a personal pronoun. So, for example, I could say, you know what, I really like your presentation, or I love what you said in the meeting. Or I could say, nice presentation, or it looks like you did a lot of research. Now, in both those cases, I'm basically saying the same thing, but the subtext is different. When I remove the linguistic I from the equation, it's possible, again, you don't want to rely just on this, but with other markers, it's possible that I don't believe so much in what it is I'm saying. Again, I really like your presentation is different from 
nice presentation. And the applications, and just with pronouns alone, is mind-boggling. Let's take, for example, you know, Jack and Jill walk out of a restaurant on a first date, and Jill turns to Jack and says, you know, where did we park our car? Or where did you park the car? Now, a seemingly benign statement, but as soon as Jill says we, where did we park the car or our car, even more so, she's begun to identify both her and Jack as a unit. Now, if she walks out of a restaurant and says, where do you park the car? If it is, in fact, Jack's car, it doesn't tell us that she doesn't like him. But from that subtle shift in language to a we or to an us and to an our, it tells us again, she is seeing the two of them as a unit, as together. And just by looking for these small things, they can add up to a very clear psychological picture relies on knowing a little bit about the tendencies of the person you're speaking with. Some people might just have a tendency not to use those pronouns. And so being able to read that is in the context of how they normally communicate. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think George Bush comes to mind, uh, the, the older one. He stayed away from personal pronouns. And it turns out years later, he said it's because his mother told him that it's, you're being egocentric by saying I and me. And people used to joke his phraseology you know, was like, ain't going to do it. This is not and so on. He would ra- rarely use the word I or me or my. And yes, you do want to, you know, filter out. And there's a whole sequence you go through making sure that you're not going to assume that somebody like in this case. And also, by the way, it comes with the extroverts and introverts personality differences. Extroverts are more likely to use the word I, whereas introverts are not. They're going to detach themselves just because of their temperament, their nature, and they're more inclined to say nice presentation, which, again, is why you don't want to rely on one or two markers. You want to look for five, six, seven, and then you've got a much clearer picture. Much has been made also about people who are not telling the truth using different levels of detail. That's right, right. So the research finds that, you know, if a person is lying about a story, they're making something up. What you see is there's a lot of superfluous details. There are a lot of details that are unnecessary. The reason is because a person who is lying knows that the more detailed the story is, the likelier it is to be true. And on face value, that is true. The challenge for them is that they don't have real details because they're lying, which means then they're going to pepper their story or their alibi, whatever it is, with lots of unnecessary details. So you'll ask the person, where were you the other night? And they'll go ahead and begin by explaining that they were home, they had dinner, and they made sure to have, they had pasta with, you know, this type of sauce. They like the red sauce, not so much the white. They'll tell you stuff that's so irrelevant, so not necessary, because they want to come across, again, as being detailed. But the problem is the details are completely not relevant to what is they're saying. You'll also notice that a person who's lying about a story, when they get to the main event, they're done. Whatever it is, whether it's, you know, where they were or with a murder or they took the cookie from the cookie jar, that's it. Where the person who is honestly telling you about something that happened, they're going to speak after the climactic event. They're going to tell you about their feelings, their thoughts, other people, what they said and didn't say and so on. But a person who is lying, they're very quick to end the conversation. And in their mind, they believe that once they tell, get up to the main event of what happened, they're done and they're happy to change the subject, which you'll also notice. You'll get very, very, very little detail of anything afterwards, where a person who is being honest in expressing what happened is going to tell you all about how they felt and what happened and the whole aftermath after that climactic event. It's sort of tricky when there's that bit of truth that's then embellished with all of these lies and it can be a little trickier to try and tease apart those details in that situation. 
That's right. That's right. So again, you know, it, it's very telling, but I much prefer to use, again, a number of markers, eight, nine, 10, even in a conversation. And when you put them all together, you get a very clear snapshot. And you want to be clear, as, as you aptly point out, is just because a person puts in superfluous details, it could be that they're nervous. It could be something that they think is important, but it's not. So you want to make sure you filter that through. But if you think back to conversations you've had with people who lied, you're going to recall that they often peppered what it is they were saying with lots of stuff that was unnecessary to bring up, particularly something, you know, if they're talking about something very dramatic or traumatic, the more details that they include that are unnecessary, the more strikingly clear it is that they're being deceptive. There are all these markers that you use. Do you find that the, the relative weights of those different markers vary depending upon who you're speaking with? Do you find that some of those markers tend to be more prevalent in terms of seeing who's lying or not? How do you approach that generally? Quantitative aspect in terms of the five, six, seven, eight markers in a conversation or in an email that point to a person being honest or not, interested or not, emotionally healthy or not. And there is a qualitative weight for sure. There are some markers, particularly in dealing with emotional health that you're going to weigh more heavily than others. People taking a look at the book, what is it that you want them to gather about if people are telling you the truth or not? Well, I think the the greatest tool is is to protect ourselves. Unfortunately, not everyone is as healthy as we'd like for them to be. Not everyone is out for us. Some are out to get us. And what it does is it eliminates or reduces that paranoia or that fear for a lot of people who may be worrying whether someone is lying to them, cheating on them or manipulating them and so on. Because when you're able to move through your life knowing whether or not somebody's being honest or not, interested or not, they're emotionally healthy or not, it gives us a... um, Certainly, I like to think that when we learn more about human nature and learning about other people, it also helps us to learn more about ourselves and understand why it is we do the things that we do. And you know, we know, at least I found from the feedback, is that as we begin to discover more about the people in our lives, we learn more about ourselves and about the choices we make and the language that we use and how it can reveal our own insecurities, our own fears, our own anxieties that might not have been so conscious before. Oftentimes, they might have a gut feeling about a situation is send something's a little bit off. Is, is there something to be said about instant impression that this person's not telling the truth? It's a great question. And yeah, we want to, you know, the, the challenge is this, is that some people don't trust themselves, right? They don't trust their own beliefs. And unfortunately, many people become victims because that voice in the back of their head told them something is wrong, but they either didn't want to embarrass the other person or they didn't want a confrontation or they didn't trust themselves. So yes, I do believe that that gut could be misleading us. It could be fear, right? It could be a part of us that doesn't want to see the truth. But if you've got that gut instinct, you've got that sort of, you know, that niggling feeling in the back of your mind that something isn't just right, trust it and then gather information. And I always encourage people, if you're in a situation and you think somebody might not be so healthy and you're worried about embarrassing them or about saying something that might offend them, don't. Because a healthy person will recognize that you are just feeling insecure and you're uncomfortable. So you don't have to get into the elevator with somebody who there's just something about it isn't right. And what happens is, unfortunately, people who are victims, afterwards, they are able to point to these very things that their subconscious picked up, but consciously they dismissed. So if something tells you something's not right, take a step back and see if you can point to what it is that's bothering you and satisfy it either in one direction or the other.
A lot of the value of the book that a lot of your work is point out what those elements are know the things to look for. Then you have a checklist then to go through and point out exactly what your gut is telling you. Yes, that's right. And, and there are, I don't know, probably about 15, 20 different markers. One, you talk about, you know, a qualitative difference is the boundaries. You know, if boundaries are not meant to keep people out. They're meant to define our personal space and responsibility and obligation. So somebody who doesn't respect your boundaries, that's an immediate red flag in terms of their emotional health and maybe your own emotional and physical safety. A person who doesn't have a clear sense and respect for your boundaries, whether it's something you say or of your things, your possessions, things like that, that is definitely something to pay attention to. Besides language, what are some other tells still relevant? Right. If you're dealing with somebody who is emotionally unwell, mentally unwell, really, there are, there are physical signs to pay attention to, with, which are self-evident. But the ones that may not be that we sort of pick up on but might not always be able to concretize uh, would be as following. One is, again, as you mentioned, the boundaries. Two is they take everything personally. The more personally we take, the more personally we take things, the less emotionally healthy we are just because that egocentricity is the converse of real self-esteem and emotional health. And the less a person truly respects themselves and loves themselves, the bigger the ego is to compensate for the feelings of guilt and security and shame and so on. So anything that manifests from the egocentricity uh, is going to be something to pay attention to. And that would include somebody with a narrow perspective, somebody who blows little things out of proportion, Somebody who is a perpetual victim, never takes responsibility, is always the quick to blame other people. Somebody who had, can be very uninterested in logic and reason and sort of twist and manipulate your words. As I'm saying this, I'm sure there are many people listening that are able to pinpoint different people who you know, exhibit these signs, which we can all to some degree or another. But it's the magnitude that is really very telling. And somebody who has a pattern of doing this is certainly something to pay attention to. How do you deal with these situations? Sometimes they may be in romantic relationships. They may be work relationships. Are there approaches then for dealing with the situations, personalities, which are routinely untruthful? Right. So, look, I always encourage people to recognize that you, you need for yourself healthy boundaries in a relationship. And some, there are people who have that, you know, perpetual people pleaser, doormat mentality. And if we understand, you know, the, at least intellectually, why we're doing what we're doing, it's a good step towards not doing it in terms of relationship and letting unhealthy people into our space. And we're wired for connection. We're wired to establish connection with other people. And a person who fears disconnection is going to allow people into their space in an unhealthy way. And it can be very hard for some folks to assert themselves and to, and to draw that line to stay strong. But when we do that, when you do that, you're going to find this an installation of just incredible self-esteem because even though it makes us feel uncomfortable to draw that line and risk that person's wrath, they're going to reject us, they're gonna move away, they'll be upset with us, all things we may have a hard time doing, ultimately it preserves our own emotional health as well as preserves the opportunity for an enhanced relationship because the relationship is not simply tenable. We have people in our lives who are emotionally unwell and we need to establish healthy boundaries in order for that relationship to survive and, and maybe even thrive. So it's, we can't be afraid to set those boundary lines. And you can't do what's irresponsible merely because you're worried about upsetting somebody. That would mean now you're doing something that's irrational so someone else doesn't behave irrationally. So 
when we're able to draw that line and stay strong and establish those positive boundaries, that is, and then it's up to that person whether or not they want to respect them, right? Whether or not they, that they want this relationship. But again, not only does it preserve the opportunity for a relationship, but it preserves our own mental health for ourselves as well as for our other relationships. We're looking at the other side of the coin. I mean, what if you are that person? You recognize it in yourself that you have this habitual habit to be untruthful. Do you have advice for them looking at their own behavior and wanting to change that? Right. So there are two types of people who are untruthful. They're the ones who lie because they want to protect themselves to enhance who they are. And that's usually stems from some sort of childhood issue or trauma or compound trauma, something like that. And then you've got the liar who is the manipulative, you know, lying person who will lie sometimes without rhyme or reason. That person isn't ever going to question themselves. So we can just take that off the table. The person who is lying, once again, you have to ask yourself, why am I doing it? And again, it's usually to protect themselves or to enhance who they are and to project an image of what they're not. And that is what the ego does. It, it sort of you know, protects our insecurities and projects an image of what we're not, but how we want other people to see us. So the research shows something startling about 60 to 80 lies that the average person tells, whether it's lies of omission or commission, where they say something that is not true, whether they don't say something that they should say. Uh, and that's the average person. So I would encourage, and I've, you know, I've worked with people who are compulsive liars, but they're you know, good people that don't mean necessarily to deceive, is to work on the root of where it comes from. And again, by understanding the source of why we lie, to get beneath that and to be able to be more honest, to be more authentic, and to say what is truthful, even though it may make us appear in an unflattering light is the way to jostle loose that, that habit or that behavior of being deceptive. Are there any final words regarding your book, Mind Reader, and what you'd like people to take home regarding this new science of deciphering what people really think? Right. One of the biggest, uh, the frequently asked questions about you know, how long it takes to use it and to work with it. And I explained from a metaphor of what's called the reticular activating system. And maybe you've had the experience of buying a new car or getting a new pair of glasses or a new suit, and you sort of begin to see that on the road, or you see that in other people, or a new hairstyle, whatever it is you're thinking of doing or getting, you begin to sort of, you know, it comes into your purview. And that's courtesy of what's called the reticular activating system. It's sort of part of the brain that hones in to what's relevant and dismisses what's not. So once you become aware of what to pay attention to, what to listen for, it is like the reticular activating system. You can't help but be able to apply the techniques and the strategies in everyday conversations and interactions. And as what I mentioned before is what it does is it gives us greater peace of mind in knowing that this person is a good person. They don't mean us harm. And for the particular person who might be fearful, a little vulnerable, very sensitive, or worried about being taken advantage of, it just helps to put your mind at ease, whether it's personal or professional or just about any conversation or interaction. We were just talking with Dr. David Lieberman, the new book, Mind Reader, The New Science of Deciphering What People Really Think, What They Really Want, and Who They Really Are. Dr. Lieberman, thank you so much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure. Thank you, doctor. And that's all for this week's edition of The Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.